And welcome to I Like to Movie Movie, the podcast about movie movies. My name is Garrett Smith. And my name is Dan Scully. And uh, today... Yeah, we're coming at you from quarantine. Yes, it's uh, as, a... just like we... every other podcast you've been hearing over the last two weeks, we are on Skype. Yes, so apologies if there are any audio issues. I yeah. think that we ironed them out. Garrett, you're a god for doing that. <laughs> I think um, we did figure them all out. I, think I am fucked when it comes to that kind of stuff. Sorry, we got you in here. But, uh, yeah, so apologies for any audio issues. It's going to be like this for the foreseeable future. Yep, for but, a little while. Um, you know, so just stay tuned. But we have a very exciting episode that we should, right up front, uh, thank one of our uh, – previous guest and friend of the show andy elijah because it yes. was through him that this got hooked up yes. but since garrett you're the wheelman on this take it away I want oh you to get yeah the... i'm very excited about this episode and and we're, we're hoping that this is not necessarily what exclusively what we're going to bring you but we're hoping this is the kind of stuff we can do while we are locked in on quarantine bring oh, you yeah. some some interesting exciting stuff from uh i like to movie movie which thanks to andy and still I got... some classic episodes we yeah, can still do absolutely. the standards absolutely uh, Andy hooked us up with um, uh, somebody I was like very excited to talk to. Somebody I'd never thought in in all of my life I'd get to talk to. Yeah, we are speaking with Michael Pressman, the director of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Two: The Secret of the Ooze. Today, amazing. And and as we've come to know in having uh, spoken to him and and had some interaction with him, uh, also has an incredibly diverse and eclectic career across TV, theater, film, uh, and still to this day is working on some very prominent projects. It, yeah. It's, it's it's a very fascinating interview. It's a great interview. He has had like a very interesting, exciting career, which I did. I was not necessarily aware of uh, before going into this interview. Yeah. I I knew him as the director of one of the movies that I grew up wearing out on VHS. You know what yep. I mean? Uh, so Dude, it was very Secret of the Ooze is probably my favorite of the Turtles movies. Oh man, I would it, say. Yeah, I mean, Turtles so, at times a little shitty. The first one is like my heart because yeah. I saw that in the theater when I was like five. Me too. But the first like, one's a classic for me. The second one has that Temple of Doom syndrome where I think yep. I had that VHS longest. Yep. So therefore, it's just in me. I think everybody I knew owned this VHS. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, so this is a movie I grew up just loving. The Ninja Turtles were probably my first big fandom. I, I don't remember a time that there weren't Ninja Turtles in my life. So thanks to Andy, uh, you know, he has a connection to Michael and I got to start emailing with him and he is the sweetest man, uh, that we may have ever spoken to. Uh, he is uh, unbelievably kind and open-hearted and we just had like a very, uh, uh, great conversation with him that is to his credit, mostly about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret yeah. of the Ooze. Thank God he was so cool about talking about yeah. that. I just had a flash memory. I remember when I was about to start kindergarten, and I was scared, and I asked my mom what kindergarten was. She said, oh, you know, there's going to be, like, fun there. Uh, you know, they're going to teach us some stuff. They'll probably have some cool toys. And I remember asking my mom, will they have Ninja Turtles? <laughs> and my mom said, Maybe. And from that moment on, I was like, school is going to be I (laughs) on the hope that there might be Ninja Turtles. That is like it it, it is true. That's like kind of the first fandom of most people our age, plus or minus a few years, because turtles are still a a cultural force today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's huge. 
uh, my mom texted me today to be like, yeah, I, I remember when you were uh, really, really young, you needed to also have the April action figure. It wasn't enough for you to have the four turtles. You also needed April. You didn't consider your co- that the full unit of the Ninja Turtles is the yep. four turtles and April. Uh, and she well, was, she is the fifth turtle. She's the Billy yeah. Preston of the Turtles Beatles. Yes, yeah. Teenage Mutant uh, Ninja Beatles. Which just, you know, an adorable mom memory. Uh, it's coming my way this morning. Uh, that speaks but, to two things. You had progressive values as a child. That's literally what my mom said. it speaks to the idea of, but I think it probably, not to undercut your, your, your progressiveness there, yeah. it probably spoke more to the idea of a fandom where you just obsessively needed all the pieces. Of course, yeah. <laughs> no, she doesn't remember that I also needed Bebop and Rocksteady just as much. Yeah. yeah. You know? uh, Quick before we start, who was your yeah. favorite turtle? Well, okay, so this is this was part of how I sold us uh, on getting this interview with Michael. Oh, right on. Uh, I was like, I grew up with these and was so invested in the Ninja Turtles that I had to pick a new favorite every single morning to ensure that none of them ever felt bad or got short shrift in that game. That's a uh, smart play. So every morning I woke up and chose <laughs> a different turtle as my favorite. I mean, I, I feel Donatello like... Donatello uh... is my answer to that question now as a, as a man in my 30s. I probably would have guessed that. I was always a Michelangelo guy. Yeah. Um, just because I, I fashioned myself a party dude. But mostly because <laughs> orange is my favorite color. But he was the funny one. And I was the funny one whenever yeah. I was in a group. Then I then I hung out with comedians and found that I was like nowhere near the funny one. Yeah. But uh, still. Tello is... Now I'm a Raphael. I'm just pissed and angsty. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I, I, of course, liked the nerdy character that was like kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. Because Leonardo leads, but Donatello does machines. That's right. That's right. Raphael is cool, but rude. Give yep. me a break. Uh-huh. Splats the pizza. Michelangelo is a party dude. Yep. Wee. But in the in the uh, continuity of the movies, Donatello and Michelangelo are always this sort of like two man comedic duo. So I, yeah, I always feel true. pretty good about that. They're the uh, they're the Scott Con Casey Affleck <laughs> of the oceans, if yeah. you will. Exactly. Um, or any other famous duo. They're probably the most famous comedic duo I can think of. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, so uh, we have this great conversation with Michael that you're going to get to hear. We talk about some of his work in theater before he got into TV, where he directed a ton uh, and then got into movies. And he talks, he tells us about his history with this movie and getting into it and making it tell some very good stories that I think people are going to be interested to hear, including about your man, Vanilla Ice, uh, who you know. You're oh, yeah. For this interview for so, he had uh, the honor of yes. directing one vanilla ice <laughs> yes uh so we well, i just want to say thank you to michael and thank you to andy one more time for uh, hooking us up with this interview because yeah uh, thanks guys this was like a big fulfillment for me this is a, a dream come true and also i think we should probably throw into context that in preparation for this interview uh michael recommended to us that we watch two oh, movies yes. uh one of them being the lady killers uh, not the Coen Brothers one, but the original movie that that's based on with Alec Guinness and Peter Sellers and all them. Yes. And then also Sweet Smell of Success, yeah. which uh, I'll definitely both... recommend. Tony Curtis, Burt Lancaster, and that one's uh, currently streaming on Criterion. Correct. So you can certainly check that out. And they're both short as shit, yep. which they're, is beautiful. They're both directed by um, uh, Alex McKendrick. Yeah, Alexander McKendrick, uh, who is Michael's uh, uh, former film teacher, actually. Um, so he recommended them to us. And I'll say one thing we didn't get to talk to Michael about, but I'll just bring up here since we're talking about it, is to me what was so interesting about him recommending those two movies to us is they are both noirs, I would say. Um, Lady Killers is maybe a little more noir adjacent, uh, but they, yeah. they both have noir elements. And Secret of the Use yeah, Lady is... Lady Killers is in color. 
Right, yeah. Uh, uh, Secret of the Ooze is straight up a noir movie. The Secret of the Ooze is that there is no secret to the ooze. It's just like a noir. It's the Maltese Falcon. Right. Spoiler alert for a fucking 75-year-old movie. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to throw that in there. Um, I guess uh, we should throw our little plugs out up top here before the interview starts and then uh, I'll say goodbye to the folks. Um, you can find us online everywhere at I Like Two Movie. It's Numeric Two. We do have, uh, we will have a Patreon uh, coming up in uh, the coming months. I think once we're on the other side of this, we will hopefully have something ready to go. I guess uh, we have no excuse for it now. Exactly. We, we yeah. now we've got the time to figure it out, so we will, and uh, and we'll have something ready for you to go. And um, I'm on Twitter and uh, Letterbox at Filmadelphia, and uh, you can read me on Cinema76.com. Uh, I have like identical plugs. It's at Dan yes. Scully on everything. Cinema76.com, Findy.com. Um, oh, I just dropped today. You guys got to read it. It's fantastic. I'm so proud of it. I just did a 25 year ret- retrospective on Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation. Oh yes, I'm a movie very that I remember loving, and it is fucking hot garbage. <laughs> but uh, it's the best hot garbage. I want it to be a midnight movie. So yeah, check that out on Cinema76.com. And I think that's everything. Oh, um. We're both going to be on upcoming episodes of a previous guest's new podcast, Chris Vanderkay, who did that uh, spoiler alert book, The Badass Book of Movie Plots. Is that what it's called? I believe that's correct. Went up a mountain and came down the uh-huh. officer and gentleman. Um, yes. He has and, a... Um, he, he has, has a... a what is got, the name I, of the podcast? I got it. I got it right here, okay, buddy. Okay, yeah, please, because it's totally... I'm out. Uh, so Chris Vanderkay's podcast, Every Little Corner of Cinema. Uh, so if you look up every little corner of cinema, you'll find he just put an episode out with me today talking about Godzilla movies, and uh, there will be an upcoming episode uh, uh, with Dan. Yes, uh, sometime I believe this weekend or next week, I basically gushed to his face for an hour about Rocky. Yes. Uh, the entire fucking franchise. So yeah, <laughs> check, but it's great, and so check that out. Super fun time on his podcast. But, but yeah, yeah, that's, check that's out. it for me. Um, well, let's, I think uh, we good. Free yeah, Joe Exotic. Do- yeah, yeah. Let's do our little sign off here. We'll do it now, and then following that, you will hear our interview uh, with Michael Pressman, director. And of I want to clarify. Actually, don't free Joe Exotic. Please leave him in jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Garrett Smith, and I like to movie movie. <laughs> my name is Dan Scully, and I like to movie movie. Uh, we all know that you like to movie movie because <laughs> we like we like to movie. movie. God, that was a little. We were a little dusty on that. <laughs> this <is> pandemic. <laughs> all right. Movie movie. Welcome to the show, Michael Thank Pressman. Thank you for being here. Um, My pleasure. For uh, for our listeners, Michael is a, a Emmy Award winning director and producer of television, uh, also director and producer of movies. Uh, Michael, I'm going to flatter you here and run down just a couple of your credits because I'm I, I am fascinated by this list here. Wow, great, uh, so, great. So you, I, I haven't had it in a few hours. You know, uh, <laughs> my wife said I was cute this afternoon. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'm not going to be able to top that, but I'm going to try here. Uh, oh. So you won an Emmy for uh, the show Picket Fences. Uh, you've also directed episodes of Justified, Sneaky Pete, Grey's Anatomy, Weeds, Boston Public, and Boston Legal, Laws and Orders, Trial by Jury, True Crime, Special Victims Unit, and Original Flavor. Uh, you're currently the executive producer and one of the directors on Chicago Med. Uh, you also produced what uh, is, I think, now considered a cult classic, one of Dan's favorite movies, Lake Placid. Oh, uh, I love it. Yes. Uh, and uh, you were the director uh, for Dan Aykroyd on Dr. Detroit. You directed Richard Pryor, Margot Kidder, and Some Kind of Hero. You directed The Bad News Bears and Breaking Training. And uh, the movie that I'm most excited to talk about today, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Welcome to I Like to Movie Movie, Michael Pressman. Did I do all that? Are you sure? I, <laughs> I, 
I mean, IMDb I'm says tired. you know it can't be trusted. Yeah, I know. No, I did. <laughs> I've worked very hard. <laughs> At your IMDb makes that very, very clear. You've had a quite a, 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 like varied interesting career that's the the deeper i got looking at the stuff that you've been a part of i was like i i can't pin you down anywhere i'm very curious to talk about how you wove your way through this interesting career wow well um you know and and a piece that's not there in, yes. in discussing it which may in fact kind of explain it all is um my uh passion for theater because I, I, I grew up in New York and loved the theater, acted as a child, um, went to Carnegie Mellon in theater. And uh, it was really, um, you know, the, the religious part of me, I consider going to the theater a, a religious experience. And uh, my wife and I are, are both very serious theater goers and she's an actress and, and was in the theater. and. So I and I've directed, you know, about five or six plays of which, you know, one of them to Jillian on her 37th birthday, I directed the L.A. theater production and then 10 years later made the movie. So that was a connection. And then Those Lips, Those Eyes, which was a movie very early on in my career, all about summer stock. So um, I've done a, a good deal of theater and recently, though it's 10 years ago, was Come Back with Ushiba on Broadway, which was a big success that I did. Oh, right on. My, uh, my better half is an actress. And yeah. so over the last, oh man, we've been together six years. So over the last six years, I've become more of a theater fan. Yeah. And it was interesting doing that jump from, because I'm a writer, and right. so writing in terms of movies and then trying to bridge that gap into theater is, uh, I don't want to say it's a very different beast, but the idea of an audience being there to almost provide immediate feedback kind of makes this different, but it, it gives it a life that's different from cinema. Totally. It's a very, very different live experience. And, and fundamentally, you know, there are some very basic differences and then some incredible similarities. And one of the big similarities is the study of human characters and the evolution of the story. After that, the theatrical experience is actually completely different. You know, mm -hmm. lives in, in, in images and telling the story through images and theater lives in uh, the physicalizing of the action so that characters are, are, are doing physical things on stage. Mm -hmm. Well, as I understand it, theater, kind of the goal is to play to the character, you know, play your character so that the person in the dead last row is going to feel everything you have. Whereas when a camera's all up in your face, there's yeah. more subtleties and less of a, you know, less action to it. Well, yes, actually, um, the camera sees what you're thinking and what you're feeling without having to express it in a way that that is um uh theatrical i mean mm. you know you guys listening to me right now it, it it's good film look what mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're you're just you're intently listening listening is the art of acting it, it still exists on stage but it's got to be the full body the full language of the body yeah. and yeah and 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 staged to bring the audience's eye to that person. That's where the director plays such a big role in theater, where in film, you know, you, you shoot your close-ups, you shoot your wide shot, and then in the editing room, you choose when to be where and who, who to be on and, and what the experience you want the audience to have through the, the choice of angles. 
I never even thought about it that way. I, I like what you said there about how the stage sort of has to draw the eye, whereas if you're directing some, you know, cinema, you kind of are the eye. Yes. And you're you're choosing the eye for the audience. Yes. Yeah. That's very yeah. interesting. Um, so, Michael, I, I'm curious because I'm I'm looking at this like deep well of stuff that you you've worked on over the years and and i think if i'm understanding you know you started in theater but your imdb starts with some movie credits yeah. i notice a lot of um tv movie credits in uh, in the 80s well, under your name yeah what happened was um uh, you know i went to uh after uh carnegie Mellon, which mm -hmm. i went through two years in the acting program and the directing program um i transferred to cal arts which was in California, actually the first year the school opened, because, and one of the reasons why I had mentioned to you earlier, I wanted to study with a iconic, great film director. And I had loved Man in the White Suit and The Lady Killers, and Alexander McKendrick was the head of the film school at CalArts. So I got to be a student of his for three years. That's awesome. Yeah. And he had great admiration for the study of theater, and the, the working relationship with actors. And, but what he also had was a um, brilliant understanding of film language, not only the, the wide shot, the close up, the medium shot, but point of view, what you're trying to say with the camera, what, you're, you know, what, what is the intent of it, and, and wonderful theatrical staging of which I think both in The Lady Killers and in Sweet Smell of Success, uh, are masterpieces of of watching four and five and six people in a shot, which was something that I wanted to do as an homage in the Ninja Turtles movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we're going here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> was in the first one, which was also a terrific film, but it was really not directed by somebody who had a theater background. He was more in the area of um of uh, puppetry and animation. And I wanted these guys and these actors and these puppeteers to live in the frames yeah. together. So if you look at it again, you'll see staging with the four turtles in the frame together. You know, a lot of movement, a lot of physical staging, which was actually very, very hard to pull off. But uh, okay, I, I'm very excited to talk about this, Michael, because this might be <laughs> the most interesting aspect of these movies to me. Yes, and I love I what you say, just said. It's I'm right so glad part. we're doing this on video, because Garrett, you're positively glowing right now that you get to talk about Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured let's skip the other uh, 40 years of work and let's get to the heart of it. Well, yeah. that's fine. And listen, I'm happy to circle back around, but I got oh, plenty of I'm questions here. go with you, I'm, that's what we're <laughs> All right, that's great. So oh, listen, Cowabunga. I. By the way, you know where Kawabanga is from, do you? I, no, I do actually, not. enlighten me. And it's been part of my life for all thirty-five years of it, so now, I probably should know. I'm going to date you guys. Everyone thought it was a surfer term, right? That the yes. surfers. Okay. It's what the Indian chief says on the Howdy Doody live TV show from the early 50s when Buffalo Bob was the the leader of the Howdy Doody show and Chief Thunderthud would show up and he'd go, Cowabunga, Cowabunga, Bob. It's from that. That's amazing. Uh, 
That makes a ton of sense because the references in in both of the Ninja Turtles movies, the first and the second one, are often like 1940s and 1950s American uh, like cinema and television. I regret never having asked um, Kevin Eastman or no, uh, is it Kevin? Yeah, yeah. Or Kevin, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Yeah, yeah, Peter Laird, whom I met and they visited the set. I I really should have asked them if they knew that Kawabanga was from the Howdy Duty show. They may have known it from a surfer term actually but i don't know that's funny because even as a kid i used to like try and find the entomology of it just by exploring the word itself but it feels like such gibberish that i couldn't really find a source and i find now that it kind of is gibberish it is gibberish and 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 you've got to go to the howdy duty show <laughs> that's I, incredible the howdy duty show chief thunder thud we'll have to look it up Cowabunga, and it totally sounds like the kind of thing like you know we all go Geronimo, although Geronimo is a an actual person, but it has that exact vibe. Right, right. Yeah. So Michael, you you mentioned uh, the way your turtles and in Teenage Ninja Turtles two kind of live in the frame together, and I just rewatched it uh, last night, having just watched both of the McKendrick movies that you recommended to us earlier in the week. So I had this exact experience of watching those two movies and then watching Secret of the Ooze and realizing that you had recommended these McKendrick movies with intent, that yeah. it was not an accident that you recommended right. those. And one of the things I noticed, because I'm a big fan of the first Ninja Turtles movie as well, but right. that movie, for the most part, almost every single scene the Turtles are in, they separate them into groups of two. They're yeah. almost always separated into Michelangelo and Donatello and Raphael and Leonardo. Uh, mm. Off on their own kind of, even if they're in the same scene, off on their own kind of separate adventures together. <laughs> they do the sitcom is, thing of uh, of trapped in a small space where they, you know, split everybody right. up so that they can all right. kind of bond right. individually. Yeah. yeah, but your your movie features all four of them in the frame very often, and right. anytime you do sort of send them off, it is literally to do active things. There's right. a bunch of scenes where you literally just make them do backflips. And all I could think about was these poor performers in these big heavy suits that you've got just doing these like acrobatics just for the sake of it. Right. Well, um, you know, I will explain if I can, though it would be best to show it to you, but I'll explain as best I can. Yeah. It took four individuals to make up a turtle. Yes. Okay. It started with a puppeteer, right? A puppeteer who was off camera, literally working with remote control, what they called servers, which were mechanical things in the head of the uh, mime actor who put yeah. on the helmet, put on the, the turtle face, right? Yep. So the movement, the mouth movement, the cheeks, the eyes, the puppeteer who was not being seen was off camera wearing like a helmet that had mechanical things touching his face. So oh, cool. So when he would go, well, hello, like that, yeah. the face 30 feet away in a remote control situation would move. That's incredible. I've always oh. wondered how the faces were, because I knew it was a computer, but I wasn't sure what the mechanism was by which they were controlled. I, that's amazing. Yeah. And actually, and I, if you think about it, it seems as if the puppeteer is doing what we previously established as theatrical acting. Correct. Because they've got expressed so big to make that puppet work. Correct. And they had theater background, these puppeteers. Yeah. They were brilliant. Now, we rehearsed for two to three weeks on this every scene. 
because in addition to the movement of the face, the mime, or I wanted to clarify it, well, the puppeteer, the actor, the actor in the suit, who would say the line is, hey, don't go, don't walk up those stairs. The actor would have to do the physical part of his body saying, hey, don't go up those stairs, come on back down. <laughs> while the puppeteer is moving the face only. Right. So it's kind of like marrying those two together. Uh, the logistics of that is so complicated. I love it's it. Very complicated. And at some point I will send you guys this little behind the scenes video I have that shows it all, which is oh, not, please for do. not for public consumption, unfortunately. But, you know, if it gets out on YouTube secretly somehow, I'll never know. Okay. So whatever <laughs> you, you know. But I'll get it. I hear you. Um, that's half the story. Then yeah. these heads were about 20 pounds or 30 pounds. Sure. So the movement was very limited. These guys could not do backflips, could not do any of this. So as soon as, and you could almost watch carefully, as soon as one actor with, with the puppeteer helmet head would go to do a stunt like the backflips, he'd leave the frame. I'd then have the young stunt actor who was in another suit, who wore just a, a helmet without any servers, without any mechanical stuff in it, that was like two pounds. Yeah. So he was an acrobat, so he could do backflips, and he was like a karate student. Yeah. So two people played a turtle in the making of it. Yeah. But finally, the last month after shooting, every puppet, every turtle, was their voice was replaced by another actor. Yes. So we had to loop the whole movie. Holy cow. Oh. Did, did you have to loop um, non-turtle characters as, no. as well? Okay. No. no, we could use the track of the actual people. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, who was doing the dialogue on set? The puppeteer. Okay, interesting. So you and would the, take, you know, because they're doing the expressive facial work and stuff, the, so you would take track, them for the dialogue. Track, you know, yeah. like, like one of the puppeteers was had a very British accent, you know, hello, like, you know, and so then, then <laughs> was doing it, do their, their interpretation of what who Michelangelo or Leonardo or whatever. You know. I'm definitely going to rewatch this movie and just in my head have, you know, replace all the dialogue with an English actor for like Michelangelo. Well, like, you well know it's, it's party time. <laughs> you'll get me your address. Oh, these videos are not. Oh, boy, with this whole thing, the videos are in New York somewhere. I'll figure it out. Well, at some point, you'll get them. Oh, when thank you so much. Passes, Amazing. When this all passes. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, so th this is literally the thing that has fascinated me most about these Ninja Turtles movies since I was a kid. Is precisely this, that it is four actors playing any one turtle at one time. And what I imagine must be the absolute nightmare of directing a movie where you have four characters, each played by four individual people. Uh, engaging in fisticuffs with one another. Right, yeah. Which has a level of choreography to add to yeah. that, yeah. Yes, and and a second unit with a second right. unit director shooting the more, you know, elaborately difficult, you know, a, a, a turtle flying through the air yep. at the junkyard was a one-day shot. Yeah, you know, yeah. On, on another stage, I come over and make sure that that works. And uh, there was a lot of... Um, it was the biggest prep of a film I ever did. I mean, I think I prepped for four or five months with storyboards of every shot and, you know, worked it all out. And um, uh, I, it, it was, I think where I was heading with this is that it really felt like 
another version of the drama of live theater. Because yeah. I, I had no idea how this was going to turn out. But I know that one of the things that we always talk about on our show is that it seems we prefer movies where all of the magic, not all of the magic, but a preponderance of the magic occurs in pre-production. Um, right. When you see a movie where after the fact, they just kind of, you know, if you look at one of the modern Ninja Turtle movies, most of that is built in a computer after the fact. Yes. And so, and theater is another thing that theater is all pre-production because the actual production is, 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 is that, that, you know, it's opening night. We're there. And right. so it is very interesting with all of these logistical pieces, it would have to be more like theater. Yeah. 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 And, 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 um, you know, we shot for, I think, 75 shooting days. And that was a long wow. time. That's a really long shoot. Yeah. And and the sets were brilliantly designed. Do you know all the sets? Well, not all the sets, but a lot of the sets that involved Splinter the Rat. Yes. Like, for example, Splinter was in the apartment, in April's apartment. And Splinter was in... Um, the underground where the uh, subway was. Yes, the mm -hmm. subway station, yeah. Those sets were about three to four feet off the ground because the puppeteer playing Splinter, and that was one person, that was uh, Kevin Clash, who had done... Um, oh, he's Elmo. a big bird. Yeah, or no, Elmo. he's Elmo, yes. Yeah. Um, he was behind Splinter, working the, the 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 motions and splinter's voice mm -hmm. so he was the true puppeteer voice finish everything we used his voice and all that. so splinter and elmo come from the same voice yep uh, yeah. mind blown yeah. i know <laughs> that's incredible uh, well, and that's that's the same technique they used for um yoda in the star wars movies right they elevated the sets and had um the I, puppeteer beneath the stage sure. i think Yes, I'm almost sure that they did, yeah, because that was yeah. Frank Oz doing it, right? Correct, and yeah. He, yep. And he was from the Henson group. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. I noticed um, that your movie is dedicated to uh, to Jim as well. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, that was sad because I never got a chance to meet him. Oh, really? Oh. No, he died about two weeks before we flew out to the Henson studio. Man. I think that if you take somebody my age, plus or minus 15 years, uh, a part of our cultural DNA will always be made up of both Muppets and Ninja Turtles. Wow. Uh, these things are evergreen. And I mean, my, my one niece is three years old, loves Ninja Turtles. Wow. And it blows my mind that when I was her age, I was just as obsessed. And it's, it's fascinating. So credit to Henson as, and as well to yourself. And, and, and to Kevin and Peter, you know. Yes. The crazy thing is that Peter Laird felt that this was all a little compromising of his original vision, which was a black and white comic strip. Yeah, yeah. It was much darker in tone. Yeah, but, you know, you can't stop it when it takes off on its own. So there you have it. No, no. And it really well, has. I mean, it is still going strong. There's still yes. new television being produced. There's still a series that I understand is active that I've wow. enjoyed so far. So, yeah. I did not see these redos, the 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 big movies. Were mm. they also terrific in their own way? They're a uh, lot of fun. They feel yeah. less like a Ninja Turtles movie and more like the Ninja Turtles action figure playset, the movie. And God. so it has that feel to it. But, you yeah. know, you could make the worst Ninja Turtles movie in the world, and I'm still going to be enchanted by it because it's yeah. just in my soul. Yeah. Got it. Got they, um, the, I got the, to see the, Krang on the big screen. So yes. like that's literally the bar you need to clear. It's done. We're good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
And so I wanted to ask you about this, Michael. Was like coming into this movie, are you do you have familiarity with the turtles coming into this? Are you a fan of this property? Do you know like how do you get involved with this movie? Okay, so uh, that after making about six or seven feature films and Dr. Detroit and the Richard Pryor movie, um, and about three or four of them, which were you know later kind of rediscovered and appreciated, were not financially successful. And um, Dr. Detroit was a you know financial failure. And I tried to, I developed some projects and they didn't happen. And a year or two went by. And I got a television movie, which led to another television movie. And I just started directing a lot of television movies. Um, I am directing a television movie, and it stars this little 10-year-old boy at the time. And um, the line producer, uh, who I know, calls me and says, I just had a meeting uh, on this Ninja Turtles sequel. And I said, what's that? (laughs) Ninja Turtles just came out. And he said, they're looking for a new director, and they really want somebody who can work with a budget and a schedule. And I mentioned your name, and they're big fans of the Bad News Bears and Breaking Training, which was another sequel, kid's sequel. Yeah. And they thought this is a perfect marriage. Somebody who works with schedule that has done feature films. And so I said, well, okay. But before I met them, I turned to this little boy and I said, do you, have you seen this, the turtle? And he was like, he went insane. Okay. <laughs> I said, what do you think if I got a chance to direct this? And he was like, he became nuts. Yeah. So that weekend I went to the movie theater and I saw the first one. And I actually thought to myself, you know, I can make a different movie and maybe a more fun movie. That that the word I had gotten was they wanted a lighter comedic tone yeah, that's yeah. more for the kids. So I really kind of modeled it after you know a Marx Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was going to be nonstop fun. As I understand it, I, I remember reading something about how because there was a little bit of pushback from the first one that was like, it's a little violent, kids are responding yes. to this, it's kind yeah. of our responsibility to cater to that. And one of the things that, that I read, and I wonder if you can clarify whether this is true or not, is that there was sort of a mandate that the turtles were not really to use their weapons and instead use things like yo-yos and sausages? Not exactly. What I had heard was... um there was some something got outlawed about nunchucks. Okay. That in England or something they couldn't use them, and they had trouble in the release of the film, and then they were banned. And so, rather than say they couldn't have swords, um, we kind of designed the idea of using other things, like he uses cold cuts as nunchucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, and. Um, but they still use karate for fighting. Yes. And um, we did, uh, you know, come up with different ideas for using. But I think there's swords used occasionally, but nothing that was particularly, you know, violent. So that yeah. was the mm-hmm. message. I know that a very young Dan got very, very, very good at yo-yo tricks as a direct result of Michelangelo. I think it was Michelangelo <laughs> doing Walk the Dog. Walk the dog. He does walk the dog and he goes around the world and takes out, you know, a a circle of foot soldiers. I love that so much that I trained myself to do walk the dog. And then it led to a bunch of other tricks. I I also did karate for a long time. But uh, there you go. 
My God. I'm, I'm about to geek out pretty hardcore. <laughs> and I'm okay. making pizza tonight. Oh, oh. Is it ninja pizza? No, it's actually a uh, it's actually a cauliflower crust uh, gluten free pizza. Uh, yeah. We're doing a homemade thing, but I mean you got to work with what you have. They would send that the boys would send it back, right? I know yeah. they'd be offended by it, but what David can you do? Warner, one of my favorite moments is David Warner, who plays the professor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Professor Perry takes a bite of the pizza and he goes, "Oh, pepperoni heaven!" You know, I think he. Had- <laughs> <laughs> he is so wonderful in the movie, and and to me is like one of the big gets of the casting in the movie. It seems. Oh yeah. He he's a brilliant actor. He had eleven. His daughter was eleven at the time. She was absolutely in love with the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> wanted to be in a movie that his daughter would want to go see, and he had a very specific purpose. And he had he was delightful. Yeah. He was one of those guys that because I was you know I was just a child when this came out. And I saw him in that movie, and that was where I knew him from. And then growing up and descending into obsessive cinephilia, he suddenly started. I was like, "Wait a minute, that's that's yeah. the, the doctor from Ninja Turtles." And right. he started to be that guy that you know before I you know learned that he was right. much right. more than that long before I caught wind of him. Yeah. But amazing. In fact, I had seen him as a kid when I went to see the movie Tom Jones mm-hmm. when he the 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 um, the guy against. Um, Albert Finney. I don't know. He was, I forget, was his name Bliffle or something? I don't know. Something. I don't know. I, what's funny is I actually had a similar experience uh, oh. watching the Lady Killers for the first time, per your recommendation, is Alec Guinness is Obi-Wan Kenobi to me. And I really don't have much knowledge of his body of work beyond that. And the then same. in Lady Killers, he shows up, he's got the crazy teeth. It's this really just wild, heightened, goofy performance. Wild. And it was amazing to watch him because if I didn't know beforehand, I would never have recognized him even. Right. But well, it's the same sort of thing that I'm about to, you know, go through his filmography the you same owe way. yourself to see of his. I mean, unless you've seen him and forgotten. But did you ever see Bridge on the River Kwai? I've oh, wait, I have that. seen Bridge on the River Kwai. I love that movie. Well, I forgot he was in that, yes. Yeah. And then, of course, Lawrence of Arabia, he plays Prince Faisal. So. Mm-hmm. I've actually never seen Lawrence of Arabia. That's, I've been meaning to correct that, but I got to sit down and devote that, a day to it. Yeah, that's a movie worth seeing in a, on a big TV. Yeah. Well, big we're in a, we're in quarantine, so now I have the time. Yes. I'm gonna hit that and uh, Doctor Zhivago, and by the time I'm done, the quarantine will be over. Yeah, <laughs> so it'll be good. <laughs> Doctor Zhivago is a long one. Right. Uh, so Michael, so the so. You don't know the turtles coming into the movie, right? And but but you you get into the movie, so and I start it, to learn. By the way, all in prep, I'm learning. I'm reading sure. the comic books. I'm getting feedback on it. You know, hearing people's opinion, getting to understand the characters, working with the writer on the script, and yeah. But so here's what I want to ask because uh, the first one, uh, the release date is 1990, and the release date of your movie is 1991. It seems like this must have had a crazy turnaround for what a big production a movie like this must be. It was because what happened was um, the film came out. Uh, I want to say like March 16th or March 26th or something like that. Sure. I think I met with them two weeks after the film came out. Wow. We they jumped were, on it that fast. Oh, God, yes. they were, And yeah. that's why they wanted someone who had like a television background as opposed to going, oh, I can't do it that fast. It was like, well, you want to start shooting in August? Oh, we can do that. Well, wait a minute. No, we started shooting in October because we worked on the script for April, May, June, 
started pre-production in July or June, moved down to North Carolina around September, started October, November, December. So we shot for three months and finished around right before Christmas. Yeah. And then I had two editors and they were editing around the clock through the holidays. They, we had a cut by the end of January and then we had reworking on the film. And then literally, I think February 1st, we started looping, finished the looping while we started dubbing. So we finished the film like March 6th, March 7th, and it came out three weeks later. That's incredible. The fact that the movie itself still feels seamless, like you don't actually feel that production so much in it. Like it still works magically. You don't, oftentimes when I, when I read about a movie that had, I don't want to say a difficult production, but a complicated production, uh, you watch it and you can see the seams. You can feel where the, the, where it comes up short just as a matter of necessity. And I feel like I, there's really not any fat on uh, secret of the ooze. It it really does still play smooth. Yeah, you know, um, that was a result of 20 television movies. I think I had directed 20 television movies by that time. So, you know, I was working three TV movies a year for six or seven years, you know. I, I saw that in your credits, and that was kind of why I asked about it earlier, because I was curious, and that you're kind of confirming that now, if that was a little bit, if that helps you get a job like this, where it's like you worked on TV schedules, where it's all about deadlines. Oh, yeah. On uh, time, under budget. Yeah. Yeah. And... And by the way, my attitude about directing television movies was for that period, I was like, I'm going back to film school. I had directed feature films. There were a lot of pressure making movies when I was really young. Yeah. The stakes were incredibly high. It was not, I don't want to say I didn't have a great time, but I have to tell you when a movie comes out and it doesn't do well. And I've always said, I love you guys coming and going. Are you there? We're good. We're good. Yeah. I still hear you. I just don't see okay. you. Okay. What I was going to say is um, I've always said that that I love the art form of movies and um, it's a uh, it's it's a ruthless business and television has always been my friend. Hmm. Yeah. Television is if you they if you do good work, if you're a good director, you work in television. If you're a wonderful director in the movies and your films don't make money, you're in trouble. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can just take any look at the business. Alexander yeah. who was a brilliant film director, and Sweet Smell of Success was a financial failure, mm-hmm. and another one of his was a failure, and he quit the business and started teaching. Jeez. That's wild. So lucky for me and us. All yeah, yeah right, right on. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I'm so glad that you, and I, and I would love to talk about it a little bit, because I know Garrett and I actually had sort of opposite experiences with Sweet Smell, uh, Sweet Smell of Success. I don't want to speak to what your experience was yet, Garrett, but I got to yeah. say, I loved it. And I have sort of a, an internal bias that I try to fight about older movies. And more and more often, I keep putting them on. I'm a Criterion subscriber, so I have more of an opportunity to do it. Uh, actually, I was I was in London last summer and got to see His Girl Friday on the big screen. And I was like, oh, you know what? This is going to be something that I make a project of. Because I always assume that I'm going to make quality concessions towards older movies. And then often surprised that I that I don't have to. Yeah. And Sweet Smell of Success feels very contemporary um, in its function. Yeah. And I, I just absolutely adored it. Well... Um, and Garrett, your reaction. So then well, I 
Okay. Yes. So my reaction was a little more negative, but mostly because I have this issue with, I think, noir in general, where, and this is my personal issue, which is just uh, those movies. I spend most of those movies trying to figure out what is it about, because that's how I tend to take art in. I like to sort of search art for meaning and theme and thematic. And it's not that noir lacks those things, but on a very surface level, noir is about oh, this isn't about anything. Like, the thing you thought it was about, it's not about. The thing you thought it was about is meaningless. It's, you know, so I spent oh, yeah, a lot the, of noir The picture's movies. much bigger than you yeah. would ever have expected, and you're lost in the, right. you're right. a cog in the but, machine. Yeah. You know, the, where the film was groundbreaking was it was so cynical. Yes. So, and such, um, and so brave that these two actors were such antiheroes. Yeah. That, you know, evil against evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you're referring to Curtis in Lancaster, correct? Lancaster, yeah. And 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 um, the downfall and the tragedy of a of a of an evil character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is no um, hero for per se. I mean, maybe the young boy, but not really, and mm-hmm. maybe the girl, but not really. And it's really um, groundbreaking in terms of the reaction to the film was like shocking. That yeah. the idea that you could actually make a film about a a real antihero, oh, the that's ba- very interesting. It was one of the early bad people movies, you know, like yeah. a, like the bad people. And, and I guess this was probably pretty close to the ending of like Hayes Code, where that wasn't a thing you could do. Right. Well, I don't know. I think the Hayes Code I, I don't know the years. Yeah. Yeah, I think that earlier. But um, there's a lot to read about and study about with Sweet Smell of Success because the other thing that was um, so interesting was that McKendrick um, w- got the script rewritten while they were shooting by Clifford Odets, the famous playwright. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the language is Clifford Odetsian. Now, McKendrick himself, by the way, was very unhappy with the Hollywood music soundtrack. He didn't like it. We, as students, we all loved it. The jazz, Elmer Bernstein score is great. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. It yeah, but he was like, you know, oh, it's too sentimental. And he's a very unsent. He was a very unsentimental man. Yeah. Um, so the film really spoke to his kind of like uh, looking at the um, the dark side of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, you should look up a little bit about it and its history. And I then, would like some more context for sure. Yeah, and then and watch it again. And it's basically based on the Walter Winchell story of of the of the columnist. You know the. <sighs> You know, yeah. that well, actually I helps that... me a little bit because I, I, I'll tell you what I actually spent most of the movie doing, Michael. And this is a little bit funny, but a little bit true. Yeah. I literally spent like an hour of the movie being like, what the excuse my language? Like, what the fuck is a press agent? What do they do? I do not understand what this guy's job <laughs> okay. is at a basic level. Isn't that brilliant? It's like cutthroat because, world. Because that was the hardest job, McKendrick said, in making the film. Yeah. To understand what the press agent and the columnist do. And that great scene you should watch again yeah. in the 21 Club mm-hmm. when he's talking to the senator. Yes. And, and that scene was specifically written for the audience to understand and dramatize the relationship, which he says, you know, I give him copy and she says, and I print them and, you know, they need it. And they fight with each other about their roles. Yes. And it, the film does dramatize. And I think in a second viewing, you'll get it. I you think know, I will. The press agent controls the uh, pitches, the stories to the columnist and the columnist prints them. You know, right. Right. And I love that that's a parallel, too, because both uh, the senator and Burt Lancaster are sort of speaking through their subordinates. 
Right. And uh, I'm going to forget his name, but Tony Curtis's character, he uh, you know, essentially <laughs> just calls him out and says, I know why she's actually here. Yeah. She's here for you. And he's here to kind of keep her yeah. there for you. Yeah. Oh, it, that was beautiful. Great scene. I think that um, everybody to, to, was Manny Davis except Mrs. Manny Davis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so many good lines. The one that I wrote down, but now I have committed to memory, is uh, you're dead, son. Get yourself buried. Oh, yeah, I love that one. Oh, yeah, so good. Yeah. Uh, but what does he say? Uh, you're a cookie full of arsenic, Sydney. Yeah. yeah, that was I was watching this and uh, my girlfriend was not watching it with me. And that line, you're a cookie full of arsenic. As she walked by, she let out a what? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting what you said about this being a uh, sort of an early movie in the realm of it's a movie about bad people being bad. Yeah. And in rewatching The Lady Killers, that was something that I've seen the Coen Brothers remake uh-huh. a couple of times. And so seeing the original one, oh, it's it's definitely fantastic and it's much better now with the original in my rear view. I was because, so loyal to McKendrick and the original that I did not see, and I love the Cone Brothers, but I just thought, you can't touch the lady killers, you can't do this. And I mean, it's fair. That's definitely fair. They do put their Cohen spin on it. But it's good that you saw it and that you liked it before you saw the Lady Killers. That helps. Yes. Yeah. And what's the Coens typically, not typically, but a lot of their movies are about bad people doing bad things Um, i mean burn after reading there is not a virtuous character in that right and the one they won the oscar for what was that uh oh no country uh, for old men yeah that is bleak 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 and And so had the bleak sensibility in in the original lady killers those guys absolutely they try to figure out how to kill the little old lady yeah Mm -hmm. well that i mean to me and it's remarkable how quickly they get to the idea of well she's got to go it, it, it takes very little resistance to get yeah. them to the point of murder. <laughs> yeah, they're thieves and murderers. You yeah. Know? Yep. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the Lady Killers. Like that one really worked for me, and I had a really good time with it. My favorite thing about it was it literally seemed like the premise of that movie was to take stock characters from two entirely different genres of movie and just put them in a small house together and see what happens. Hysterical. I never trapped yeah. in a small space. It's like the little old lady feels like she's a cartoon character from an entirely different, like, uh, uh, realm of existence from these villainous men who right. then just sort of enter her world, you know? Kendrick said that it was like uh, their whole idea was that she was like the queen of England. <laughs> she was the queen, you know, out of step with the rest of the world. Yeah. You know? And she gets to be because everybody caters to her. Yes. And, you know, I, when she goes to the to the police station, they're always like, yes, yes, that's fine. Yes, We've heard what you got to say. I always when everyone asks me about what's the story about it, I always say, well, it starts with her going to the police station saying, I've seen UFOs. And they say, oh, really, Mrs. Wilberforce? And then the whole movie happens. She comes back and says, you know, that crime that happened, they disguised themselves as 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 musicians. And then they had the money in their suit in their suitcases, and then they all disappeared. So what am I supposed to do? And they said, you know what, Mrs. Wilberforce, keep the money. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> what a great, what a yeah. great ending. And I got to say, this was uh, one of the remarkable things in watching the Lady Killers is I was really expecting some very large performance from Peter Sellers, and it's not at all. It's oh, a yeah. very muted, very quiet performance. Very, it's one it's that's very strong. funny. It's first job. It's his first job. That's it really okay. Yeah, because he's not commanding the camera, but he fills his slot nicely. Right. Um, the whole wheelbarrow gag is just, I know. just perfect. It's, and uh, yes, yeah. as somebody watching it in in 2020 
who uh, you know I was born in in 1987, right? So it's I'm I'm 30 years past this movie, right? Right. I, I, so, the, and the arc of history, right? The funniest thing about the movie is I'm watching a movie that stars Peter Sellers and Alec Guinness, and my familiarity with these two guys is that they should be playing the opposite roles in this movie. Like, there's nothing yeah. about the arc of history in their careers that would make you assume when you go into the movie that they would play the characters they're playing. Right, right. Uh, that's that really interesting. I think yeah. you're correct, yeah. There's a documentary that was made this year by a director who's a dear friend of mine, uh, Peter Medak, who directed um, uh, Peter O'Toole in The Ruling Class, and he's done some other movies. Anyway, he made a film with Peter Sellers that never got released. That was a nightmare. And he's made a documentary retelling the whole film. If you type in Peter Medak, M-E-D-A-K, the movie just came out and I just saw it. And I think it's a brilliant documentary. And I'm, you know, I don't know where he is right now, but you wait till you see how crazy Peter Sellers was. I've heard many stories about how. Uh, uh, oh, so the film is that the ghost of Peter Sellers? Yes. Okay. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, I know he was difficult, and he got away with uh, with the whole like, well, he's a genius. Let him do his thing. Beyond, beyond insane. Yeah, insane. I could imagine. It's a painful, painful documentary, but funny. <laughs> I will definitely check that out because I still have a lot of holes in my Peter Sellers filmography. Right. And of course, there's Doctor Strangelove. I've seen a handful of Doctor Strangelove Panthers, is my... but like I've never seen Being There, and I'm just oh, now was... getting into Hal Ashby. So I feel like I should really get into that. Yeah. Being There is, is a masterpiece. How oh, I really would like to see it. I, I just watched The Last Detail recently for the first time, and that was the first time in a long time that a movie ended, and I immediately wanted to watch it again. And so I, I'm all in for being I there. saw the last detail. You know, I, I have an association with movies that we don't really have today, which is I remember where and when I've seen a movie. Mm -hmm. I went to a screening at the Directors Guild a week before the last detail opened in a preview screening. And I just remember being blown away, oh, man. Blown away by that movie. I haven't seen it since. It's... I mean, I, I watched it on an iPad on Criterion Channel and was blown away. So I can only imagine what that would be like to see it with that buzz. Yeah, and I, Gary, you have Criterion now. you got to watch that, man. I do. I'll have to check that out. It's yeah, primo it's stuff. Un unbelievable stuff. I mean, to watch. Criterion's amazing, you know. Yeah, I, you're doing I, God's I, work. Want to hear a Criterion story for you? Oh, Absolutely. please. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I, if he's listening and finds this and contacts me, the vice president of Criterion, uh, yeah, he's a regular listener. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> so I'm walking in Brooklyn, and this is 20 years ago now. No, no, it must have been about 15, 16 years ago. And there's a dog loose, and I grab the dog, and and um, uh, he's got a collar, but I, I get him to our apartment. And I, I get the phone number from his collar and I call and I get this guy. Oh, my God, you found our dog. And I said, well, yeah, he was loose on the street. He said, well, he he he, he we, we had some guests and I opened the door and he got <laughs> got out. Excuse my dog. <laughs> don't don't the story, Raffi. Anyway, so this Raffi. guy. Yeah, this guy running over to the house and, and he says, oh, God, thank you. Is there anything I can do? And I said, no, 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 please. I'm, I have a dog. And he said, no, no, no I, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the vice president of Criterion. Can I get you something? Would you like something? And I went, no, please, no. He left. And I went, 
I said no. How could I have said <laughs> yeah. I I could have said, are you kidding? How about the whole collection? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I said you want 150 DVDs? I'll give it to you. You said you found my dog. That's I, incredible. I missed, I missed my big moment. Yeah. You could have been sitting on that whole block of uh, Toshiro Mifune films that just dropped. Yeah. I know. Huh. And it just dropped on uh, on TCM last night. I caught a little bit of a Toshiro Mifune, and not. Oh, Seven Samurai, yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah, they, I just got the email from Criterion. This weekend, they're dropping 70s fashion icons, so Shaft is going to be on there. Right. And uh, a whole bunch of uh, Toshiro Mifune turns 100 this year. Uh, well, you know, would have turned yeah. out 100 this year. Have you ever seen oh. a great movie, which I've never seen since I saw it in the theater, and I have to, I, I have a DVD, I've just got to open it and watch it, is High and Low. Did you ever see this movie? High I have low? not. I keep hearing how good High and Low is. It's phenomenal. I remember uh, you couldn't breathe watching this. Mm. It's a contemporary one. It's not a it's not a samurai movie. Mm-hmm. It's a detective. There's a there's a kidnapping and wild. Oh, I mean that always gets recommended in the same breath as uh, Ikiru. Ikiru? Yeah. Ikiru. I don't know how to pronounce it. Ikiru is one I don't know. I don't know mm. Rashomon, which is a masterpiece. Oh, we just did an episode on Rashomon yeah. recently. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Well, we figured in a, in a world where everybody's uh, everybody's facts are different from everybody else's, Rashomon is kind of the way to, you know. It's true. It's true. And, you know, I think that the, the great thing about movies, well, let's talk about movies for a second. Please. Can we? Yeah. It is, <laughs> um, it's such a wonderful history. If you really want to study and go back and look at periods in cinema and the silent film period and, you know, the great movies. And um, uh, it shocks me when young people want to get involved in movies and they haven't seen the great films. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, how do you not see, you know, those great masterpieces? My wife and I have been catching up. We watched last night or a few nights ago, we watched uh, Some Like It Hot again. Oh, right on. Which is great. Then we looked at Singing in the Rain again, you know. Uh, make them laugh is like I I dream of one day being able to perform make them laugh, but I think I might be past that point in my life. <laughs> never know, never. I don't have the lung capacity. I just can't yeah. do it. I mean, uh, there's, I mean, isn't it amazing how many? And the thing is, in I, I was in Chicago this year working on this TV series Chicago Med. That's where we started communicating, and we went to see a movie at a movie theater. My wife and I that was starred Joan Crawford that was playing at the uh, Metro or whatever. There's a great movie theater in Chicago. And it was called Sudden Fear, which we'd never seen. And I thought there'd be 20 people in the theater. We'd go see this Joan Crawford movie. The place was packed. Mm -hmm. Awesome. 300 people in this theater. And I will tell you, they're screaming and cheering. And it was theater in the movies, you know. And it's the wildest film ever. It was great. That's- to uh, to relate to that, one of the most heartwarming moments of my last year, I referenced it before, I went to the BFI in London, and they were doing a whole uh, uh, Cary Grant uh, retrospective. And so that's where I saw His Girl Friday and Suspicion. And both times, the curtains drew, and I couldn't believe both, both uh, screenings were near sold out, if not completely sold out, and very responsive, reactive crowd. And it, it was amazing that I'm seeing this happen in movies that are from so long ago that I couldn't, right. you know, I couldn't even tell you what the number is. But yeah. But but the thing is that that's part of the experience that we're kind of missing today. 
Mm-hmm. You know, now look, I I love the iPad and I have a really great iPad. I, I catch things all the time and watch them. And I find if the iPad is close enough and I've got the earbuds, I'm hearing great sound. You know, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm and if it's if it's a great movie or something, I'm 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 with it. But there's nothing like seeing the movie in a movie theater with a full crowd. I mean, oh, we, well, you're we talking to two critics. Yeah. And we both work as critics. And as a result, do have the opportunity to see things early and with an enthused crowd. Right. And that's one thing being stuck in the house right now. That's probably what I miss most is not because I, I have access, you know, we have access to whatever movie you want to watch. I mean, we're all connected. But I miss that most having that that group experience of responding to a movie. And, you know, when this all passes, I bet you the movie business will pick up even bigger. I'm kind of feeling the same way, actually, that I think people are going to I think people are going to be longing for that experience in a way that because there's a lot of things like I'm suddenly calling people on the phone in a way Mm -hmm. that I haven't in many years. Right. This is driving us back to a lot of experiences, I think. Yeah. I literally told my boss today that it was, or the other day that it was nice <laughs> to hear her voice. Oh, <laughs> it's my boss. Because the only voices I've heard are Garrett's and Jenna, my my better half. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> where are cat doesn't say much. Where, where are you guys physically? You're in Philly. Is it? We're both Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yes. Yep. Right. How's it yeah. always? Is it is it hit hard in Philly or not yet? Well, it's we responded bad. to the lockdown pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, we've got a fair amount of cases, yeah. But uh, I, I think we're doing better than most uh, like urban centers. Yeah, we're not piled on top of one another like New York, which is what I think is kind of hurting them. But um, you know, we're we're everybody's following the rules as far as I can see, which is is good. Yeah. And you are you up in New York? You know what we we're in we were in Brooklyn, or I have a home in Brooklyn. And instead of going to Brooklyn, we decided to turn around and go straight up to Maine, where I have a, we have a summer cottage. Oh, nice! And, and we're moving in there next week. We're renting in Camden, Maine, where the total cases of the coronavirus is two. Great! Oh, Great. that's where you want to be. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we've got a few. I know in my own zip code there was 42 earlier this week. Yeah, I'm in the most populated or the most infected zip code. So it's been, uh, yeah, I'm trying to stay in. And they're off the charts, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're doing our best. Yeah. Um, but Can the, I drop a, uh, I want to drop just something that I wanted to say back when we were talking about the elevated stages of the puppetry. Yeah. Uh, one thing that, that I just will recommend to both of you is if you ever go back and watch old episodes of ALF, <laughs> ALF had the same issue because of the puppet, but because the guy who was the showrunner for ALF had some mental issues and stuff the the mandate was to treat alf as if he was another performer completely and so because alf himself had precedent the set had lots and lots of trap doors and other things for alf to come through and so if you watch the show one of the things that in hindsight is noticeable is watching the human performers trying to be responsive to the trap doors and stuff without expressly acknowledging them and when you know that watching Alf, it is doubly hilarious and frustrating to watch because you can see them just trying to produce some craft, but they're just stuck at the behest of a puppet. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I, there's a moment for me in movies that I that I always tell about, since you are a Peter Sellers fan, um, in Dr. Strangelove, at the hmm. very end of the movie, if you watch carefully, when 
Peter Sellers starts to do all his Doctor Strangelove stuff and explain his his theories. Peter Bull, who played the Russian ambassador in the, in the can't keep a straight face. Yep. Have you seen that moment? <laughs> yes. I did um a few months back. I introduced Doctor Strangelove at a local theater. And that was the first time I had seen it on on a big screen. And so that was the first time that I was able to notice that. Yeah. And it's, oh man. And actually that was another great experience where modern audiences went to see this movie and it was raucous. Yeah. Uh, fantastic time. But yeah, you can see the the Russian premiere just kind of pull yeah. the, the Jimmy yeah, Fallon move. He's doing this, yeah. Yeah, that, fantastic. I, was, I wanted to tell you, Michael, that that's like something that in Philadelphia, something that's alive and well are like repertory screenings of stuff. Oh, good. Um, we go to so there's a group here called Exhumed Films and they collect like 35 millimeter prints of like exploitation movies and like old Italian movies, horror movies, all this like old genre stuff that's hard to find out of print otherwise. And we go all the time like and their screenings are usually sold out. There's like a, a very healthy desire, I think, right now Isn't to see cool? older films projected on the big screen the way right. they were kind of intended, you know? Well, I, 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 too, in the last year, I mean, I had Dr. Detroit screened at the, you know, Quentin Tarantino's movie theater in L.A. Oh, you did? Oh, That's cool. cool. Yeah, and then also Boulevard Nights, which was about the Chicano gangs. That yes, yeah, yeah. That too, so. Yeah, we're lucky. We have, I mean, within walking distance from where I am right now, and, you know, they're all closed, but there are six movie theaters and three of them are for art house pictures and stuff. So Philly has a thriving yeah. scene uh, and we have a really uh, the, the Philadelphia Film Society, our nonprofit around here, is very, very active in making sure that film stays alive. It's it's it, fantastic. It, I'm so impressed. That's great to know. It, I mean, said the last thing I city. saw in the theater before the pandemic was an exhumed films. They screened uh, uh, Friday the 13th Part 3, and they did so on 35mm in 3D. And uh, it was beautiful, but wow. that's, the, that's the last thing that I got to see before it ended. But as a testament to that the scene is alive and, and thriving. Yeah, so great. hopefully more people will be on board when this all ends. Yeah. I, I had a friend tell me today, he said, when this is over, I'm never flaking on plans again. Because I need to, I need to get out. So hopefully that'll that'll transcend to the movies. I I think so. I think yeah. so. Now, Michael, before we let you go, I think we'd be remiss not to ask you about the finale of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two, which features the ninja rap as performed by Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice, uh, which is probably the most one of the things that the movie is most famous for, I would say. <laughs> What's um, funny, though, is that I think Finale, I think Super Shredder. Yes. But you're right. Finale, we, we should associate with Vanilla Ice. <laughs> of course. That's true. That's true. I, I always associate the, the the set that we had to build of the East River. Yes. Yeah, of the turtles popping up with their shells and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Great fun. But, oh, that's funny. Um, you know, he was, that, he was cast during the shooting of the film. Okay, you know, I was wondering we, about that. We knew there was going to be a musical number, and then all of a sudden they said, we got this guy, Vanilla Ice. And I uh, have to say, I was n not following him, nor that much aware of him. Uh -huh. I would have read you as a fan. Wild. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so I treated him like, you know, like a, like the superstar he thought he was. Sure. And um, he, he was perfectly okay. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, he did his stuff, and he committed yeah. And he, I think he had fun. They were there for like two to three days almost. Sure. We shot that for three days. Okay. So, 
you know. I will say about a decade ago, oh, this is going to be a really strange sentence to say out loud, but I'll say it. About a decade ago, I went to a free Vanilla Ice concert at the Trump Marina in Atlantic City. Oh, and um, yeah, that's a lot. That one, yeah, they put Let all that simmer. But yeah. I'm pleased to say that Vanilla Ice and his band opened and closed with Wouldn't Ninja Rap. You're kidding. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, and and to his credit, he played the show without a, an ironic wink. He played it as if it was 1991 and he was the, the hottest shit in the world. And it was a blast. Yeah, well, he did when we did it. I mean, I thought he committed fully. He does. I yeah. mean, he's that sequence is yeah. great because he commits as hard as he does to it. Yeah. It, re it really is. Yeah. And it seems to be suggested that he's improvising the entire song. Yeah, which if he I was. remember correctly. Yeah. But in in the context of the film, it's as if he was like, "These turtles are fighting. Yeah. Green machine. Here we go." Yeah. 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 No, he did a good job with that. He did a good job. You know, I can't say that I was you know enamored with. Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, <laughs> this is why I asked Michael actually because I was curious, like when you're working on a big I, film like it, this. We didn't end up staying like fast friends, you know. I think <laughs> fair, I, fair. That was the last time I saw him. But that's why he was he was totally like into it and yeah. cool. Yeah. You know, and I I'm, cool as ice. Cool as ice, yeah. yeah. That's that's a vanilla ice movie. Right. <laughs> There's a movie called Cool as Ice where Whereas he tried to become I like an A-lister. That was fun on Doctor Detroit when I had James. Yes. Brown. Oh that yeah. That must have been amazing. James Brown of Rocky Four fame. Yeah. Now, so <laughs> I'm gonna angle you towards my Rocky poster. Whoa. <laughs> so do but do you write a scene like that in the hopes that oh maybe James Brown will be in my Ninja Turtles movie? <laughs> Uh, no, you mean no ice or James Brown? I mean, well, well that, that's what I mean. It's like you, it sounds no, like you had a musical number. Is, each time these things happen, they happen sort of uh, circumstantial. You yeah. know, that one, I think, in again, in the middle of shooting, Dan Aykroyd, who knew James Brown from Blues Brothers, yeah. we contacted his people and then we committed. Oh, wait, this goes back to prep. Now I know because we had to rehearse before we started shooting. Um, get down on that thing, whatever that song is, with yep. the dancers and all that in, in um, pre-production. Or was that when we came back to L.A.? No, I, we knew somewhere like two months before he showed sure. up that it was going to happen. But we didn't know in the first writing phase. Right. I, that's because my curiosity is with something like like Ninja Turtles, where it's like you're you're uh, uh, coming on board like a, you know, a big studio project where they're, they're kind of, I imagine, somewhat in control of decisions like we're going to put a vanilla ice into the movie. Um, you yeah, write a I, it was I didn't see this as a film that was representing my vision of the world. Right. So I I I had a very clear understanding that I was gonna make a really irreverent kids movie. Yes. And 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 get into my head. And I think this is really sort of the best way to sort of finalize the whole concept of, of my role in Turtles nice. and yeah. the, is that I I very consciously tapped in as a director to my eight-year-old sensibility that everything I wanted to view as like an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old in terms of the humor, in terms of the, and that I never looked down upon it and never made fun of it, yep. but wanted to live in it as a director living in that mind, in that brain, like my character was, and I was a 10-year-old director. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, if it isn't just right, it wasn't just right. It's got to be, you know, the timing's got to be perfect and da da da, da and, You know, and so um, it, I, I, and then this was somewhat of a conscious thought 
And then in the making of the film, I was just doing my job and I realized afterwards when I put it together that it really did capture that that experience because people said to me later, how did you make this movie? And I said, I think I became a 10 year old for four months. It's definitely a movie that's made without any cynicism, which it yeah. seems like a movie that could have very easily been made through that lens, you know, mm -hmm. or, or somewhat looking down upon it or yes. some, you know, uh, to relate, I, I'm a, I'm a terrible actor, but I was told uh, when being taught how to act that the second you start judging your character, it's over. Yeah. And that seems to go through any sort of creative thing. The second you step away and start to look at it, you know, it, from a position where you could potentially be looking down upon it, the magic is, is it's gone. Right. And, and so to view it from that thing is commendable. I will, I will tell you that it's easier said than done. Everybody deals with self-judgment all the time. I will share with you that one of the people who I had to work with a lot to sort of get into his childlike headspace. And by the way, he's brilliant and was brilliant was Richard Pryor. And when yeah. Richard Pryor was down on himself and judging himself and thought he was terrible, he couldn't do it. Yeah. And he had to get him past that, you know? That's fascinating. But we actually both are former stand-up comedians. You guys and, are? Yep. Yeah. And yeah. if there is ever a group of people that have a hair trigger towards getting down on themselves, it's comedians and Richard Pryor being probably the greatest that ever lived probably has quite a hair trigger on that. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm very impressed because I literally have been thinking about doing some stand up, and I was going to do it in Chicago, but it got too crazy. And maybe next year I'll try it because it's, it's a, it's a, a it's a terrifying thought, but if you can do it, you well, it's, try, Michael. It taps into what you spoke about, the, the you know, the liveliness of theater. Right. Except with theater, you still do have to wait for the critic report to come out for the review. Whereas right. stand-up, you know the second that that punchline leaves your mouth, whether you have gotten a good review or not. Exactly. And it's very, very tough and scary. But I've always said that I believe everybody who is interested should at least try it once. Yeah. And uh, you've probably got a whole bank of stories that you can go up there. I bet you do. I bet you do quite well. Yeah. I just have to find my angle in telling mm -hmm. this. You know, it's, it's got to, you know, I mean, it, it, it's such a it's such a crazy idea for the for this this old guy to show up and say, you know, uh, some of my best friends are turtles, you know, yeah. <laughs> <Whatever>. that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. I like your opening. Actually, honestly, you could probably get a lot of mileage off of that. Even if you're just bombing people be like, this guy worked with the turtles, give him right. some time, give right. him a chance. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen guys, this was fun. This was yeah, was thank great, you so Michael. much for doing this. This, uh, th we just really appreciate it. Good. good. And stay in touch. And if, if I ever get, I'll get back to Chicago at some point and we'll stay in touch and I'll get you that, little dvd behind the scenes which will please that would be wonderful thank we you so much see that. That, all right that would, okay. appreciate michael thank you very much for your time I, we really greatly appreciate it this was wonderful good thank you both this was a lot of fun all right Excellent. take care all right. stay Great. safe you wash too, your hands you got it bye bye love it, love it. <laughs> perfect <laughs> sorry sorry i just gotta get some coronavirus out <laughs> <laughs> No, it's because I have a diffuser on it. I just like inhaled some hardcore peppermint. Coronavirus, my little flute benders. <laughs> I like to. Oh, God. Yeah. Corona yeah. tomahawk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, ready?